We have the privilege every time we gather to celebrate the fact that we serve a God who makes promises to his people and keeps his promises. We are people who have great and precious promises, we're told. And God makes incredible promises to us. And some of the promises we have, we don't even remember that we have, but God faithfully keeps his promises because that's essential to his character. He's a promise-keeping kind of God, and we celebrate that. Today, I've, uh, I'm taking a sort of a broad picture look at the promises of God, and I will put most of the scriptures that I'm using today on the screen so that you can follow along with the various scripture readings, uh, because there's a lot of them, and I don't want any paper cuts on your fingers as you turn those pages to try to find all the references in your Bible. I don't know if you can get paper cuts from your telephone Bible app, but this is Isaiah 40. This is a prophetic promise of God. It begins with these words and leads to this. Comfort, O oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term. A voice cries out, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Catch this promise. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God said it, it will happen. Hundreds of years before Jesus is born, we have this passage in the Old Testament that predicts that there will be a voice crying out in the wilderness, calling the people to prepare to see the coming of the Lord. And this prophecy will be fulfilled, but here we have the prophecy recorded in Isaiah years before it happens. Not only does Isaiah tell us that a voice will come, that he will announce the coming of the Messiah, Isaiah tells us about the character, the type of Messiah that's coming. This is Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. For hundreds of years, all of Israel lives in anticipation of the fact that there is a Messiah coming. And so it should be no surprise to us that when Matthew starts his gospel, he starts with, Genealogy, a heritage listing. You can find this on, what is it, Ancestry.com? You, you've seen the first chapter of Matthew. 
in the Old Testament, I mean in the New Testament King James Version, we called them the begats. So and so begat, so and so begat, so and so begat. This was the father of this, was the father of this, was the father. But this is what Matthew tells us. When Matthew starts telling his story, it takes him 16 verses to get to the point of the genealogies. Listen to it. This is what Matthew finally writes. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who bore Jesus, who is called the Messiah. That's what Matthew's telling us. Jesus, in the line of David, which means the root of Jesse, is Messiah. Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of the Old Testament. Step one in the argument that Matthew is building is that Jesus is the Messiah and God, once again, is keeping his promise. And then in Matthew chapter 3, we get these words which continue to move this story forward and document what Isaiah has already predicted. This is Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John speaking in verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I, and I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is Matthew again telling us that John, who we've often referred to as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, that itinerant preacher out in the desert fulfills prophecy as well. John is the anticipated voice telling us that the anticipated Messiah is on the way. Once again, God is keeping his promise. It's important in Advent that we know John's story because John's story is sort of where this narrative begins. John's father is Zechariah, he's a priest, he is very, very, very old. Once a year, some priest is selected by lot to enter the most holy place and burn incense before God. It's a dangerous place to go. Zechariah has never been chosen to do this before in his very, very long life. As a priest, he would have hoped that someday the lot might fall to him. But once chosen for this duty, a priest was never chosen again in their lifetime to do this. This was a once and done deal. And there were like 14,000 priests. So you didn't necessarily know if your lot would ever get chosen, if you'd ever get to walk into the most sacred place in the temple. But on this particular time, Old Zechariah, who must have thought about the possibility year after year after year after year after year, has his lot chosen. And as you know, only one person can enter this holy place every year. And if something would happen to a person in there, 
No one could go in to retrieve the body. So they always tied a rope around the priest when he went in. So if something happened, they could haul him out because they understood that the holiness of the Lord was so immense that even to be in the presence of God probably meant instant death. It would be overwhelming. And an old guy like this, how would his heart even stand it? I mean, you go in there and something crazy happens. I mean, it's possible, who knows? And so Zechariah gets this lot. He's going to go in there. He goes in to burn incense before the Lord in the holiest of places. And he is surprised. All of a sudden, there stands the angel of the Lord. And I suspect it was atrial fibrillation. I mean, I suspect something happened to his heart when he looked at that. And you know the first words of the angel, don't be afraid, right? Because those words were necessary. They weren't a courtesy. They were necessary to keep him from just passing flat, flat out. It's such an amazing occurrence. And, and when the angel says to Zechariah, you and your wife are gonna have a child, that's hard to believe. I mean, he's very, very old. His wife is very, very old. They've suffered through the embarrassment of barrenness all of their lives. She's way past her time for conceiving a child. And, and when the angel says these things to Zechariah, that is where Abraham and Sarah show up in the story, right? Because this kind of thing has only happened one other time in Israel's history. Way back in the day, a couple thousand years before, the angel appears to Abraham and Sarah and says, you're going to have a child. And what does Sarah do from the tent? She laughs because she knows this is ridiculous. 90-year-old ladies don't have babies. It's only happened one other time. And when it happened, it was the fulfillment of God's promise, right? God had said to Abraham, your descendants will be like the stars of the sky and the sands of the shore, and there'll be no counting your descendants, and this is what God is going to do through Abraham to bless all the nations of the world. So when God is doing a new thing, when God is keeping his promise, he announces it with something spectacular. And so Zechariah, being a priest of Israel, he has to think, when the angel says to him, you folks are having a baby, he's got to think Abraham and Sarah. He has to think that. And if he thinks that, he has to then think, what on earth is God going to do now? What, what will this mean? This is only the second time in human history this is happening. The last time, it was the forerunner of all of the outflow of God's promise. And what, what is it going to mean now? I think inside him, he chuckles the way Sarah did, right? And you know what happens then? The angel says to him, well, you know, since you didn't believe it was possible, you won't be able to speak until the child is born, which gives Zechariah a good nine months to think about what this is gonna mean, right? And so he's in daily communication with God for nine months because he can't speak to anybody else. And he begins to understand what it means for God to keep his promise. And when the baby is born, he announces what he has come to understand. 
This is what Zechariah tells us that God has done. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty savior for us in the house of his child David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. Prophecy fulfilled, promise kept. That we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, child, this is John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So what do we know about John? this voice crying in the wilderness? Well, John is going to announce the fact that God has raised up a mighty savior from the house of David through the root of Jesse. That this giving, this child that is to be given is an expression of the mercy of God and is in fulfillment of the promises to Abraham and Israel. And that John, this child, is the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. God is keeping his promise. Everything happened in the way it was foretold. God's planning and preparation is for us. God told us what would happen so that when it did happen, we would recognize it for what it is. But I think there's something that maybe neither John nor Zechariah completely recognized. This is what Matthew 3 records as John's message. Therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the ax is lying at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a part of the ministry of Jesus that John announces. And John defines what Jesus has come to do. Remember, we were told by Isaiah about the way Jesus would conduct his ministry. Remember, it was said of Jesus, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The spirit is in Jesus Christ as he is born on earth and as he lives his life here to enable Christ to fulfill his mission in the world, which according to John 3.17 is that God didn't send the son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, right? And so we have this message of John that feels a little bit like condemnation. 
and this message of Jesus, which a little bit feels like salvation, and how do you manage to get these two things together? Which Jesus do you expect to come? The one who says, turn or burn, or the one who says, I came to save you, not to condemn you? And, and are these two sides of the same coin, or how, how do you put all those together? I have a theory about this, but at a minimum I know this, that when Jesus comes, when God comes among us, this is what he is like, okay? This is Luke 15, verse 20. The prodigal son sets off and goes back to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Jesus comes to seek and save all that is lost. Jesus comes to redeem everything that can be redeemed. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to us, that redemption, that freedom, that life is available to us. And you say, why all this anticipation of the coming of the Messiah? Because someone just like the father in the story of the prodigal son is coming for us. Someone with forgiveness, healing, compassion, and mercy in his wings is coming for us. God keeps his promise to us. He is a God of forgiveness, of rescue. And to truly understand Advent, you have to hold these two pictures together. I understand that John says turn or burn. But he says that in the sense that Jesus is coming again and we must be prepared. There is an opportunity here for preparation. And like any good parent who would wave a flag of warning in front of a child who is headed off into destructive behavior, John waves the same flag for us saying, look out, be careful, pay attention. Your choices matter. And there is someone who is coming to rescue you. God's goal isn't our condemnation ever. But like any good father, he won't leave his children in a dangerous place. And remember, here is the true picture. We're told in scripture there is coming a day when every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And this isn't a faith statement. This isn't saying, well, everyone will be forced to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is a scientific observational statement. This is scripture. This is God telling us that there's coming a day 
when all humanity will see the coming of Christ and because they're seeing it with their own eyes, they will be forced to acknowledge, oh, I guess that was true. That day's coming. That day will arrive. And everyone, whether they had faith in Christ or not while they were alive, will we'll see the return of Christ. And on that day, it won't be a matter of faith anymore. It's gonna be a matter of observation. And we will see the king come. And everyone will bend the knee. Because they will know that the only appropriate action in the presence of the magnificence of Jesus is to bow down. There isn't gonna be anybody putting hands on shoulders and forcing people to their knees. It will be the difference between what we see and who we are is so obvious to us that we will fall to our knees and acknowledge that this one is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. That is his promise to us as well. That is his promise that he is coming again. This is the true picture of what Advent proclaims to us. If you're reading the little devotional book that we've been reading as a congregation, you'll notice a day or so ago, the reading mentioned the fact that the name Zechariah, John's father's name, means God remembers. He remembers what was said to Abraham and Sarah. He remembers the promise of his word. He remembers that he has fulfilled promises to us and he is remembering that he will send Jesus once again back and he will return and every knee will bow and every tongue confess and all of his children then will be forever with the Lord. All of his children then will be forever. All of his children will be forever. He will collect his family to be with him forever. So how do you prepare for the coming of Christ? Well, you pull out your birth certificate, really. You just, you look and see what it says there. And I'm not talking about the one issued by the state of Connecticut or wherever you were born, wherever you were born. I'm talking about the Lamb's Book of Life where he records birth, where he records new birth, right? When we've asked Christ to forgive us our sins, when we have asked Christ to lead us by his Holy Spirit, when we've asked Christ to be Lord of our lives and show us the way forward, that's the only birth certificate that really matters because that is what demonstrates membership in the family of God and that is who Jesus comes to collect to live with him forever. So how do you make his path straight? How do you see every valley, every, every entry road to your heart leveled out so that Jesus can make his way to you? Well, you open your heart to him and you say, Lord, Take me, I'm yours. Holy Spirit, fill us, fill me, lead me, enable me to be your child. And as we do that, we get to realize the promise of God again for us, that he came to save us, that he came to rescue us, that he came to shine his light in our lives 
so that we can live to please him day after day after day. God keeps his promises. God is keeping his promise. God will keep his promises to us. In a moment, we're going to sing a closing song, very old closing song. Some of you might remember it. Many of you have never heard it before. But it underscores this particular truth. God is at work among us. God is calling some of us. Some of us have already entered the kingdom. Some of us already know our names are written in the Lamb's book of life and we celebrate and we rejoice in that. But the great tragedy of human existence is to not have your name written in the Lamb's book of life. And while God is drawing others to himself, we don't want the Holy Spirit to pass by us and not accept his invitation to join his family. And so this morning while we sing this song, I invite you to verify the birth registration form, to ask the Holy Spirit, have, have I opened my heart to you, Lord Jesus? Have I surrendered my life to you? Have I invited you to be Lord of my life? And if not, this is the way you prepare for Advent this year and for the future. You open your heart to him and you say, Lord, come to me, fill me, accept me into your kingdom. You can do that several different ways. While we're singing, if you want to kneel at this altar, I'm happy to come and pray with you and walk you through those steps. You don't need my help to do it. The gospel's clear. You can invite him where you're seated in the pew and he will come because God keeps his promises. And he is so interested in inviting you into his family. It's his chiefest desire that you would receive him into your heart. And so whether you decide to kneel at the altar and invite me to pray with you or whether you want to do this where you're seated or this afternoon in your home, don't make the mistake of not being prepared. Be prepared. Receive the promise of God today. Open your heart. Make room for Jesus. Would you stand with me, please, while we sing? Ask me not, O gentle Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others you are calling, do not pass me by. me by trust
trusting only in your merit, I now seek your face. Heal my wounded, broken spirit. Save me by your grace. Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others you are calling, do not pass me by. Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry. While on others you are calling, do not pass me One of the dangers of times like Advent and Christmas is that we do the same thing year after year after year and we forget why. We forget why we're doing it. And those habits become entrenched and so, you know, you just have to have turkey at the meal or you just have to put up these particular ornaments or you just have to do this and we get distracted from the reason we do any of it and that's a dangerous place to be to be desensitized to that which is central to all of it and the central thing is that God has kept his promise to you and has made it possible for you to enter his kingdom by the blood of Jesus. That's the center. And if we've forgotten that, if maybe you've forgotten the joy of your salvation, if maybe you've forgotten what it is to live surrendered to Christ completely, it's time to hear the voice of the Spirit say, come home, come back. Remember again what Christ has done for you and step into life in that kingdom so that your joy can be complete in this season. Sing just that chorus one more time with me and invite the Spirit to speak to you. Savior, Savior, hear my humble cry while on others you are calling do not pass me by let's pray together gracious God we are so grateful that you keep your promises to us that you have opened a way for us to enter your kingdom, 
to be cleansed from our sins, to be free from all that binds us, and to live in the glorious freedom and light and joy that you provide for all of your children. Lord, don't let us live beneath our privileges as your children. Don't let us settle for some type of routine that looks like faith but forgets what you've done. Keep us anchored in your gift to us. Enable us by your spirit to live as citizens of your kingdom this day and every day until you come back to claim us as your children. Thank you for the hope that is ours, that you are indeed coming, and that you will receive us. We praise you and worship you for your promise. And now may the God who keeps his promises bring the joy of his promises to life in you, that you may always reflect his glory now and always. Amen.